I read a story this week about an airport cargo handler. He was in Seattle, and he was unloading pets with some of his fellow employees, and they found out that one of the dogs on the plane was dead. And they weren't sure what to do, and they kind of panicked, and this is what they said to the owner, Sir, your dog was uh, misrouted to Phoenix. Come back tomorrow, and we'll give you your dog. Well, that gave them enough time to go to the local dog shelter. They went to the pound, and they found a dog that was nearly identical to the one that was dead. And so they call the guy up and say, hey, we've got your dog. And so the guy comes to pick up the dog, and he looks at the dog, and he says, that's not my dog. And they said, well, sure it is. It just looks a little different because of uh, jet lag. Guy says, that's not my dog. And this goes back and forth. And so uh, finally they say, well, sir, how do you know that that's not your dog? And the guy says, um, because my dog was dead. I was shipping it back to be buried. <laughs> we don't normally expect pets to come back to life. And for that matter, we don't normally expect people to come Come, to come back to life either. And yet there was a man who lived about 2,000 years ago who said, I'm going to die, but I'll be back. I am going to rise from the dead. And ever since the day he died and reportedly came back to life, the world has never been the same. This morning we're continuing our series called Risen. And again, this is the purpose. These messages are intended to help us as a church family celebrate Easter like never before. And by that I mean this, I want us on Easter morning to be able to celebrate with, with passion and with purpose, to engage our heads, to engage our hearts, and even to engage our hands, because the resurrection of Jesus means there's something for us to do. And so my goal this morning, as we go through the message, is to give you something to think, something to feel, and something to do in response to this message. So are you with me? All right, let's dive in. Here's the first question that I want to begin with today. This is on your outline. Why should anyone believe that Jesus came back to life? And let me say this. I know that many of you have heard about the resurrection for years. And sometimes when we hear about the same topic over and over again, we kind of just tune out mentally. Oh yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, it's sort of like Christmas. You know, I heard about the shepherds and the wise men and the sheep and all that. Heard the story a gazillion times. But I hope this morning that as you listen to this message about the resurrection, that you'll see it with new eyes and that God will speak to you and open your heart to what he wants to share. So with that being said, as we talk about the resurrection, I could tell you this morning about really famous people, you know, judges and lawyers and historians and professors who were once skeptics, but they investigated the evidence for the resurrection and they decided it was true and they became a Christian. But I'm not going to do that this morning. What I'd like to do is this. I want to tell you why I believe Jesus Christ is alive. I just want to share with you what I believe as your pastor is good evidence for not only believing that Jesus is alive, but telling other people that Jesus is alive. So let's begin with this first reason. I'm going to give you three reasons, and the first is this, testimony from eyewitnesses. Testimony from eyewitnesses. How many of you have ever seen an episode of Law & Order, the TV show, or one of the multiple spin-off shows? Imagine this. Imagine that you're in the courtroom, and you're hearing testimony from eyewitnesses to the resurrection and each witness is going to testify for 15 minutes and what we're going to do is just line up all the people mentioned in the Bible who claim to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection they're going to testify one after another 15 minutes each continuously how long would that take 
Well, if we started today at 1 o'clock in the afternoon interviewing witnesses, they wouldn't finish testifying until sometime Friday night. That's almost six full days around the clock of continuous testimony from eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, I personally would think that'd be pretty convincing. There's a passage of scripture, this is in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, a follower of Jesus in the first century, says this about eyewitnesses. He says, for I receive what I passed on to you, notice this phrase, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, that's the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. Now, when it comes to eyewitnesses, I think about a disciple named Thomas, a follower of Jesus who might just have relatives in Missouri today, the show me state, because he is often referred to as Doubting Thomas. And where did he get that name? Well, there's a time where Jesus' disciples are together and Jesus appears to, to them, but Thomas isn't there. And so the disciples are saying, hey, Thomas, Jesus is alive. We saw him. He talked to us. And what does Thomas say? I'm not going to believe it unless I see him for myself, unless I actually touch the place where those nails went through his wrist, unless I take my hand and put it in his side where that Roman spear just split him in half, I'm not going to believe it at all. And what happens? Well, there's another time that the disciples are together. This time, Thomas is with them, and Jesus appears. Now, can you imagine Jesus looking at Thomas and saying, Thomas, hey, come here, put your finger right here where the nail went through. Thomas, come here and put your hand on my side. Thomas, stop doubting and believe. And how does Thomas respond? He says, my Lord and my God. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection. Think about this. Of all the world's major religions, only Christianity has a founder who died and came back to life. In 1900 BC, Abraham died, the founder of Judaism. And four uh, 83 B.C., Buddha died. In 632 B.C., Muhammad died. In 33 A.D., Jesus Christ died, but then he came back to life and was seen by over 500 people over a period of 40 days. I heard a story about this young man who was a, a Muslim, and he became a Christian. And his friend said, how could you possibly do such a thing? And he said, well, imagine this. You're walking down a road, and then it forks to the left and to the right, and you're not sure which way to go. And there are two men there. One is dead and one is alive. Which one do you ask to show you the way? Why should anybody believe that Jesus came back to life? Well, the testimony of eyewitnesses. And also for this reason, the radically changed lives of his followers. The radically changed lives of his followers. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what do his disciples do? They just run. They scatter. They're terrified. And when Jesus is crucified, where do you find the disciples? They're hiding behind locked doors. But what about after the resurrection? Where are the disciples now? Now they're in the streets telling anybody who will listen that Jesus Christ is what? That he's alive. They are filled with courage. And there's one story in particular that's really striking. It's in Acts chapter 4. And it involves Peter and John. They actually had healed this guy who's a, a beggar. He was crippled. And they healed him in the name of Jesus. And there's this giant uproar. And the religious leaders want to investigate what's going on. So Peter and John are hauled before the religious authorities. 
And they want to know, by what authority or in whose name did you do this? And Peter's response is so incredible. This is what it says about the story in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now just imagine, this is the Peter who was so intimidated by a servant girl that he denied Jesus three times. And so he says, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Imagine Peter just pointing them out. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And what was their reaction? This is in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, they were shocked, they were stunned, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Did you know that with the exception of John, who was a follower of Jesus Christ, all of the other original disciples died as martyrs. Peter and Andrew were crucified. In fact, Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die the same way that Jesus did. And Peter's wife was crucified alongside him. Matthew was killed with a sword. Doubting Thomas was run through with a spear. And the list goes on and on. But the remarkable thing is that all of these disciples died for what they believed. And what they believed was this, that Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross for sinners and came back to life. And the question is, if the resurrection never took place, and these disciples would have known that, if the resurrection never took place, why would they die for a lie? Their allegiance to Christ, their changed lives, is compelling evidence for the resurrection. So why should anybody believe that Jesus came back to life? Well, the testimony of eyewitnesses, the radically changed lives of his followers, and finally, personal experience. Through personal experience. How many of you have ever personally experienced a hurricane in this room? I'm not talking about the football team. I'm talking about the tropical storm. I had to clarify that for a service. All right, how many of you have ever seen a hurricane change somebody's life? All right. How many of you... Um, don't believe in hurricanes. Isn't that interesting? How many of you, let me ask, how many of you have never personally experienced a hurricane? Okay, but you still believe in hurricanes. Why? Because of the testimony of other people, what you've seen on the news, you've seen hurricanes alter people's lives. You see, it really works the same way when it comes to evidence for the resurrection. There's evidence all around us, but one of the most compelling kinds of evidence is personal experience. One time, somebody asked Billy Graham this question. They said, how do you know that God's alive? And Billy Graham said, well, that's easy. I talked with him this morning. And somebody says to me, Dully, how do you know that, that Jesus is alive? I would say the same thing. I just talked to him a few minutes ago. And by the way, he has changed my life. And I know that for so many of you, that's your experience too, isn't it? You decided that you were going to step out in faith and trust Jesus and he has changed your life and you know that he's real, that he is alive. And church, I have seen Jesus at work in our church family. I have seen broken hearts healed. I have seen broken marriages restored. I have seen broken bodies healed. I have seen people set free from addictions. I've seen God bring peace and pardon 
and power and purpose to people's lives. And many of you have seen that too. You've witnessed firsthand the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. I remember reading a, a poll that was done by George Gallup where 84% of the people interviewed, and these are people who don't go to church at all, 84% said they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now that's interesting. But they also said this, I believe in the resurrection, I just don't understand it. So what difference does it make if in fact Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead? What difference does it make in our lives? And what I want us to do right now is to think about that. What difference does it make in my life? What difference does it make for my family? What difference does it make for our church family? And I want to begin by sharing one of my favorite stories. It goes like this. One time an entire town gathered in the county courthouse for a trial. The prosecuting attorney called his first witness, an elderly woman, to the stand. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people and talk about them behind their back. You think you're a big shot, but you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yeah, I know you. Well, the lawyer was stunned, and he didn't know what to do, so he points across the courtroom and says, Mrs. Jones, do you know the, the, the defense attorney? She replied, why, of course I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster too. I used to babysit him, and he's been a real disappointment as well. He's lazy, bigoted, has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Yes, I know him. Well, at that point, the judge wrapped the courtroom to silence and called both counselors to the bench. In a very quiet yet menacing voice, he said, if either of you ask if she knows me, I'll hold you in contempt of court. God knows everything about you this morning and everything about me. The good, the bad, the ugly. So what difference does the resurrection make? Here's an incredible difference that the resurrection makes. Look at your outline. Because he lives, because he lives, you can let go of the past. Because he lives, we can let go of the past. Think about this. What if somebody came to our church service this morning and said, um, I have a video of all the wrong things that Jesus Christ ever did, and I'm going to show it on the big screen. Now, what would you expect to see on the screens here? Nothing. Why? Because Jesus lived a perfect life. When he was tried, they couldn't find one charge that would stick against Jesus Christ. Not one credible witness could say that he had done anything wrong. He lived a perfect life, and that qualifies him to lay down his life for us. Now, what about this? What if somebody showed up this morning and said, hey, I've got some, uh, some videos of people in, in the church family here, and the video is um, all the things that you've ever done wrong. I'm going to select some people, and we're just going to put it up on the big screen. Now, if that were the case, what would you be doing right now? Yeah, running for the exit doors, trampling each other to get out. I don't want anybody to see this. This is awful. Now think about this. What if that same person says, what I'm going to do this morning is show God's record of all the wrong things you've done. I'm going to show God's record of all the wrong things you've done. 
do you realize if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to get out of your seat? You know why? The screen's going to be blank. Let that sink in. That's an incredible truth. That on the cross, this amazing thing takes place. The record of perfect obedience that Christ has is given to you when you put your faith in him. In God's eyes, it's as if you have never, ever sinned. And so, take a look at this verse from Romans 4. He, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life. Why? To make us right with God. And and here's another compelling argument. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. One time, President Calvin Coolidge, a man known for um, few words, went to church and his friend said, so um, President Coolidge, um, what did the pastor talk about today? And he said, sin. And his friend said, well, what did he say about sin? And President Coolidge said, said he's against it. Is God against sin? Absolutely. Why? Because it breaks his heart. Why does it break his heart? Because it breaks the people that he loves. And we all know this, that Our disobedience has consequences. Our sin separates us from a holy God. And if Jesus had never come back to life, do you realize that in the history of humanity, not one single person could ever be forgiven? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our sins have never been forgiven. We are shackled to the past. We cannot be free from from guilt, from shame, from regret. But thank God that's not true. Jesus is alive And he came to set us free. His resurrection means that we can let go of the past. And here's another difference that Easter makes. Because he lives, you can deal with today. Because he lives, you can deal with today. Now, I'd like to ask for a a student volunteer. Would somebody like to volunteer to come up and help me illustrate something this morning? Could I get somebody to do that? Griffin, come on down, Griffin. All right, Griffin, I've got some balloons. Um, Don't applaud yet. Um, (laughs) I've got some balloons. You can choose the one you want, okay? Now, what I want you to do while I'm speaking is blow that up, okay, with as much air as you can, but here's the deal. You've got to be able to tie it closed, okay? Now, as, as Griffin blows up that balloon, let me just do a little exercise with you. Um, there are certain phrases that people say when they're really stressed out and overwhelmed, and I'm going to start it, and you complete it. Are you ready? I'm ready to throw in the... Okay, I'm at the end of my... Okay, ever feel like that? You know, life can, can really be hard. It can be a lot of pressure that, um, that we feel. Griffin, excellent job. Now, Griffin, this is your life. This is you. This is me. This is all of us, this, this big balloon. And I was thinking about this last night. You know, sometimes when you wake up in the morning, um, life starts to press in on you, doesn't it? You get worried and fearful, and these problems are just everywhere, and they push against you. Now, what happens if that pressure just continues to build, what, what do you think will happen? Okay? Yeah, this will, that's what will happen. Right? Thank you, Griffin. Now, I have your attention, right? But here's, yeah, you can clap for Griffin. Good job, Griffin. Here's, here's the thing. Now, when that pressure starts to build, what can you do? 
If you're a Christian this morning, do you realize the Holy Spirit of God lives inside you? And the Holy Spirit can push back against that pressure so that you don't what? Pop. So that you don't explode. And here's the thing. We can ask God for his strength. We can ask God for his power. Look at this verse. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, I'm ready for anything. How? Through the strength of Christ who lives where? Yeah, Jesus doesn't just live out there someplace. He lives inside us. There's a pressure that can push back against life. And that is so incredibly important. And here's a verse that links the resurrection with the power of God available to us. Look at this verse. It says, how incredibly great is his power to help those who believe him. How many of you need God's power to help you today? Man, I do. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. We sing a song here. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And that's absolutely true. But the question is, okay, I get it. I don't want to be like the balloon. But what do I do? How do I get God's power in my life? And let me ask you this. How much power does God have? Yeah, he's called omnipotent, omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And this power that God has, he wants to share with you so that you can get going and keep going. But how do you get God's power? Here's where it starts. You ask. You realize, God, I need your power. And so you ask for God's power, and then you do this. You trust God, and you obey God. Because listen, church, God's power is not for our agenda. It's for his. And his agenda is to make us more like Christ. And if we say, Jesus, I need you. I want to trust you. I want to to carry out your agenda for my life. God is going to hear you, and he's going to answer you, and he's going to give you his power. Now, here's another difference the resurrection makes. Number three, because he lives, you can be sure of your future. One of the things that Jesus promises to all of his followers is they can be sure of the future that he is preparing for them. Look at this verse from John 14. Jesus says this, just before he goes to the cross, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. And notice what Jesus says next. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Jesus is basically saying, if this wasn't going to be the case, would I lie to you? Now, what kind of place is Jesus preparing for us? Well, if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, this is what you read. And this was written by John, the one disciple that wasn't martyred. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now, right now, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And do you see the beauty of this story of redemption? This is how it was in the Garden of Eden, that God is with Adam and Eve, and it's going to be like that at the end of the story, that God is actually going to live with his people. And it gets even better, because check out this verse about the future. He, God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Man, I can't wait for that day. That's going to be amazing. So Christian, listen to me. No matter what you're going through this morning, get your head up. Get your head up and look up because God has a great future in store for you. And that brings us to this last difference that the resurrection makes. It's simply this. Because he lives, you have a story to tell. We, church, have a story to tell because Jesus is alive. Look at this verse. It's from the book of Acts, 
Jesus says this to his disciples, but the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you power. Then you will tell everyone about me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and everywhere in the world. Do you realize this morning if you're a Christian it's because they did what Jesus commanded? Somebody from one generation to the next has continued to tell others about the story of Jesus and you've believed it and it's changed your life. But what does that mean? It means we have a responsibility to do what? to continue to tell the story of Jesus. Let me ask you this. How many of you like movies? How many of you really like movies? You can raise two hands. Now, in terms of the kinds of movies that you like, um, who likes dramas, dramatic movies? Okay. Who likes um, action-adventure films? Probably a lot of you guys and some gals as well. Okay, good. Um, how many of you like romantic movies? Okay, I see some, yeah, the chick flicks the notebook you know what I'm talking about right I, I was thinking you know this this story in the Bible is an incredible story and is there any drama involved in the story in this book any drama oh absolutely um, any action adventure yeah there's battles and wars and all kinds of stuff but do you realize that at its core this is a love story it really is why did God make us in the first place because he loves us. He wanted to express his love to us, and he wanted us to love him back. That's why he made Adam and Eve, and that's why he made you and me. And what happens is, and you know the story, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They broke God's heart. But did God stop loving them when they disobeyed? No. Did God stop loving you and me when we disobeyed? No. So what did he do? He pursued us with his love. And we know this, the reason we need to be pursued is because our sin had separated us from God. And the reason it separates us is because God's not only a loving God, he's a just and a holy God who has to punish every sin we've ever committed and that just punishment is to die and to be separated not just in this life but for all eternity. But because God loves us, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son comes to earth and he lives a perfect life. And then he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and hung on a cross. And on that cross, an amazing transaction is made possible. God's willing to put your sin and my sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. The, the death that we deserve, Jesus dies for us as our substitute. And then God raises him to life. And that, my friends, is a fact of history. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus invites you to live an entirely different kind of life. Because here's the truth. Because he lives, you can't let go of the past. Because he lives, you can deal with today. Because he lives, your future is secure. And church, because he lives, we have a story to tell. A story of hope. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning for this grand story. And it is a love story, God. You, you love us in ways that we don't even fully comprehend. But God, I pray this morning that you would capture our hearts with your love. And Father, this morning as we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus, I pray that you would draw our hearts close to yours. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.